0: This message is entitled Special Revelation, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Are you ready to go on special revelation? Remember, under Revelation divided, I said it should be divided into two major areas. And one of those areas is general revelation which we discussed last hour and sought to show the practical purpose of general revelation. Now this hour, the second major area of revelation is special revelation. You remember we said general revelation rested on creation. Now, special revelation rests on the basis of recreation. That is... It is addressed to men as sinners with a view to their redemption and can be understood only by the spiritual man. I'll repeat the whole statement again. Special revelation rests on the basis of recreation, is addressed to men as sinners with a view to their redemption, and can be understood only by the spiritual man. Now, you remember we said that general revelation had its sources in the glory of God, the greatness of God, the power of God, the orderliness of God, the godhood of God, and so on and so forth. In contrast to that, special revelation is sourced in Jesus Christ, the living word, John 1, 1 and 14, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. It is sourced in Jesus Christ, the living word, and in the Holy Scriptures, the written word of God. Now, since all we know of the living word, Jesus Christ, is contained within the written word, therefore, special revelation is objective, Factual, final, and complete. That is, it is objective. It is written down. It is not subjective. It is factual. It deals with the facts of history. It is interwoven with the very historical setting in which we find ourselves. It is final. That is, the 66 books. Of the Bible, our final revelation. Therefore, Jude 3 says we are to contend for the faith. And that's an objective, definite statement. The faith, the body of truth, once for all delivered unto the saints. So it's a body of truth delivered at a point in time for all time. Special revelation is not something that is happening today. It is something that has happened and primarily happened in Jesus Christ and was recorded in the written Word of God, the Bible. Now, with that rather definitive statement in the background, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I would like to develop. The doctrine of special revelation from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, in order that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the princes of this age that come to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages unto our glory which none of the princes of this age knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit, For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? Even so, the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is of God in order that we might know the things freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but in the words which the Holy Spirit teaches, combining spiritual truths with spiritual words. Now that's about as clear a statement in the Word of God as I know of on the doctrine of special revelation, the written Word of God. I'd like to put then a simple outline on the screen dealing with the fact of revelation, the means of revelation, and the method of revelation. Starting first of all with a the fact of revelation. And you'll find that in verses 7 through 10a. And the first thing that Paul seeks to get across to us here is that revelation is something that was previously hidden, that is only now unveiled or revealed. You'll notice that he says that this is a mystery. Notice, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now, mystery, in the Greek, musterion, means simply that which is hitherto unrevealed, undisclosed. It is hitherto veiled, heretofore veiled. And only now, Unveiled. A mystery, then, in the word of God is not something that is mysterious, that's not the idea of it, but rather something that was hidden. And that's why he goes on to say, even the hidden wisdom of God. And interestingly enough, in talking about the hidden wisdom of God, this word, hidden, is in the Greek a perfect participle. And that may not mean a lot to you. So let me just give a brief lesson in grammar, in case you're not aware. In Greek, three of the tenses are represented this way. The aorist tense is a once-for-all action, and it is represented by a point, it is point action. When we suggest that Jude 3, the faith, once-for-all delivered unto the saints. There you have point action, it is not continuous. You have another tense in Greek, which is the present tense. And it refers to continuous action, represented by an ongoing line. Continuous action. When we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, be kept being moment by moment by moment, controlled by the Spirit of God. That's continuous action, present tense. As opposed to the baptism of the Spirit, which is point action. All right, those two contrast. Now, you've got a third tense, which is represented by a point, similar to the aoristic action, and a continuing line similar to the present tense. So it tends to combine both of them. It speaks of that which happens at a point in time, and the results continue to live on. So Paul is saying, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom. That is, the wisdom which has from all time been hidden in God and continues to be so for the world. That is, special revelation is something that is only understood by the spiritual man, basically. But it is now revealed, he says. I speak the wisdom of God, hidden from a point in time and continuing on from that, That's the kind of wisdom we are now speaking, that which has been hidden. Now, his evidence of that is verse 8. He says, which none of the princes of this world knew. Obviously, they didn't know it because it was hidden. And they demonstrated they didn't know it because they crucified the Lord of glory. And he says, had they known it experientially, is the idea there, and there are two words for know, and this is the one for experiential knowledge. Had they known it experientially, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But the very act of crucifixion portrayed that they didn't know it. So his illustration of the hiddenness of this wisdom is the crucifixion act which they perpetrated, verse 8? Previously hidden, then. Now, I want to digress for just a moment here to say something about neo Orthodox theology and their doctrine of revelation. The heart of the distinction between Orthodoxy and Neo-Orthodoxy, as represented by Karl Barth, Emil Brunner, Reinhold Niebuhr, so on and so forth, the heart of distinction between Orthodoxy and these men is in the doctrine of Revelation, which we're talking about. This is where the greatest difference comes through. because the two views of revelation, of orthodoxy and neo-orthodoxy, are diametrically opposed to each other. Orthodoxy says that God has not only revealed himself personally in Jesus Christ in his life, but God has revealed himself propositionally in the words that Jesus and the Apostles spoke. In contrast to that, Neo-Orthodoxy says God does not reveal himself propositionally in word form, but God only reveals himself personally. So that in Neo-Orthodoxy, you run into titles of books like The Divine Human Encounter, Speaking of, that which happens when a person reading something inspiring takes the leap of faith and meets God, the holy other, out in Urgeshikti and has a divine human encounter, and that's Neo-Orthodoxy's doctrine of revelation. That the holy other God, who is not imminent but is only transcendent, reaches down and grabs men up out of the historical situation and lifts them above the historical situation into Heil's Geshikti, or holy history, in the Ergeshikti, which is above history, where he has his divine human encounter. Now, if you don't understand those terms, don't let it bother you, but some of you have undoubtedly heard them used rather freely in college religion classes. And this is what they're talking about. Basically, how does God reveal himself? And they're saying that God only reveals himself personally, not propositionally. That is, God does not reveal truths about himself. He only reveals himself. Thus, Reinhold Niebuhr had a very familiar phrase that went like this. The truths of faith lose their force when formulated. The truths of faith lose their force when formulated. Now, what is he saying? He is simply saying when you try to put the personal revelation of God into word forms, you lose the force of the revelation. So he is saying really that words are lesser than the personal revelation. Now, there is an item of truth there, isn't there? Obviously, it's much better to see the person in action than to merely hear what he has said. But that's not the whole story. For... It is no joy for me to look at a television set and see the picture but not hear the words. And I'm sure any of us, if we had to choose one or the other, would rather have the words without the picture than the picture without the words. Now what does that say to us? It says that mere acting is not sufficient. And therefore, another neo-Orthodox book, in its title, betrays its fallacy. The title is called The God Who Acts. And seemingly, in neo-Orthodoxy, God is capable of acting, but he is mute. He can't speak. Now, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 2 demonstrates the fallacy of that kind of thinking. For if acting was enough, what about those who crucified the Lord of glory who was putting on a tremendous act on the cross? But you see, not everybody interpreted that act the same way. Some people came along and they looked at the cross event and they said, what a tragedy that such a good man should have to die for such a fruitless cause. Somebody else came along, like Schweitzer, and said, deluded fanatic, he was a product of his own insanity. Somebody else came along and with biting sarcasm said, if you are God, then save yourself. If others you are able to save and you cannot save yourself, are you God? And somebody else came along, this one on the cross, and he said, in essence, my Lord and my God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There were a lot of different interpretations of the one act. And until heaven spoke with regard to the cross, you did not have any certainty of what happened on the cross. And it took the interpretation of heaven to give reality to the event of the cross, so that interpretation by word must always go together with deed or event. One without the other is really not complete. And by all means, the least complete is the act without the word. You can see it on a more simple level. If you go downtown here and you're driving down the street, you see a man jumping up and down on the curbing on the grass out there and you say, boy, the poor fellow just got stung by a bee. Another car drives along behind you and says, look at that crazy drunk on the side of the road jumping up and down. Another car drives by and says, poor guy, his wife just kicked him out of the house. All different kinds of interpretation. Until that man unveils to you what is in him, you have not the foggiest idea of the truth now that Paul says is the reason for revelation had the princes of this world known it they would not have crucified the Lord of glory they saw Jesus Christ in all of his pristine purity but they killed him now Paul says secondly though it was previously hidden it is now revealed That is, it is now unveiled. And here you could fill in the definition we gave of special revelation earlier. It is now revealed, in verse 10, to us. Now, two things here. Maybe I should make a remark about verse 9. Here is a verse that is often taken out of context. This should fit in good with what we talk about in hermeneutics later and used as a funeral sermon. This has nothing to do with a funeral service or one that has died and now gone to be with the Lord. You'll often hear it used, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them to love him. Then they go on to say, but this dear brother now who is with the Lord is now enjoying all those things that were not known before. Now Paul was not dead when he wrote this. And the next verse says, but God has revealed them unto us. In other words, we don't have to wait till we're die to get these things. These things have been revealed. What kind of things? Things that an eye has never seen, that an ear has never heard, that a brain of man has never imagined, God says, he has revealed unto us. That's the kind of thing that we have in the word of God. Now, he says then, it's past tense. It has been revealed. And there is your heiress, point action, has been revealed. Point action, past time. Secondly, he tells you to whom it was revealed. To us. And in the Greek, they show emphasis by word position. And here they put to us up in the front of the sentence. We don't do that in English, but they do it. And so he says, to us it has been revealed. That is not us here, that's us there, Paul. We have never been the recipients of revelation. Revelation is complete to the holy apostles and prophets. And so Paul emphasizes to us, God has revealed those things, as he writes to the Corinthians. And that was important for the Corinthians especially, because they were claiming that through all of their ecstatic utterances, they were having revelation that was superior to Paul. Paul says, let's get our heads screwed on right at this point. As to whom God has revealed these things. To us, he has revealed these things. And that eliminates Jethro of the children of God. And that eliminates Sister Mayor Be- Bakerson, Patterson, Glover, Eddie. And that eliminates Sister G. Ellen White and Sister Amy Sample McPherson and a number of other sisters who claim to be the recipients of revelation. Whether you like it or not, God has locked you in to revelation that has been revealed. God may give you illumination with regard to the revelation, but he doesn't give you revelation. So Paul says it's past tense to us, has been revealed to us. Now, secondly the means of revelation. And you'll find that in verses 10b through 12, the means of revelation. The first thing he says in answer to this question, how do we get it? Is one through the spirit. The channel of the revelation is the spirit of God. He is the agent of revelation. But when you have said that, you really haven't satisfied man's curiosity as to how. How do this means, how do this channel work? So secondly, he gives you an illustration that ought to be transparently clear to every one of us. He says, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? A moment ago, I made mention of the fact that no one knows what is in another person unless that person reveals what is in him. And by revealing, I mean telling the truth. You don't even know what is in me just because I talk, for in my talk I may be lying to you. But when I have really chosen to unveil myself without distortion, prejudice, or anything else, then you know what is in me. Sometimes in some of these sensitivity groups where people really begin to unveil, you get some of the clearest stuff that is in a man. Some is not so clear. So he says, you don't know the things of a man, only the spirit of the man that is in him knows the things of a man. He says, by like fashion, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God who is in him. And to whomsoever he wishes to reveal him. So it is impossible for a man to discover God. Some of those little songs we used to sing in Sunday school, you know, climb, climb up sunshine mountain, heavenly breezes blow, and so on and so forth, the whole liberal thesis that we discover God, that we climb, climb up the mountain until we finally discover God. That is essentially liberalism. And that is essentially what Harry Emerson Fosdick taught, for example. Harry Emerson Fosdick made the statement that revelation and human discovery are simply two sides of the same coin. Revelation is no more than man's attempt to find out God. God says just exactly the opposite. And there, by the way, is the contrast between neo-orthodoxy and liberalism, and that's what neo-orthodoxy rebelled against. Carl Barth said, man can't discover God. God is transcendent. God is holy other. You'll never find out God. God will only be known when God sovereignly chooses to reach down and lift man up out of history. So that the liberals said, God is imminent, and he specialized in that. God is everywhere, you know. Oh, Ralph Waldo Emerson comes up to a tree, and he says, oh, to be a tree. God is everywhere, see. Bart says, not on your life, God is nowhere here. God is there, and he only specialized in the transcendent God. Now, there are pieces of theology without the whole. There's one building a whole theology on the imminence of God, and another one building a whole theology on the transcendence of God, and both of them are wrong because God is both transcendent, he is other, than, and he is imminent. He is in and through everything, but he is not identified with anything. God is not a tree, though God is in and through a tree. So in contrast to the deist who is transcendent, you recognize that God is in and through. Well, we'll get into that later in the doctrine of God. But it relates to these things. You cannot divorce them. These things are all interrelated. So that no man discovers God. Man does not, by his human ingenuity, find out God. The only reason man can know about God is because God unveils himself. He chooses to initiate an action which man then, in grace, is able to profit by. So God the Holy Spirit, who alone knows the things of God, has unveiled to man those things. That's the channel. Now thirdly, what is the method of revelation? You find that in verse 13. Begin reading in 12 that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak. Now notice how Paul conjoins that which the Holy Spirit has done with what he is saying. And the word he uses here for speak is, rather than the common word lego, which is used thousands of times in the scripture for say or speak, he uses the word laleo, which puts the emphasis on the word Form or the utterance, and thereby is stressing the form of the word that God has given. It is not that God has merely given me thoughts, but God has put the thoughts of God into word forms, which word forms we are uttering to you. The very word forms that God has given. So in verse 13, He says, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. We did not get this from Aristotle and Plato. It's not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, and he's not denying man's wisdom at this point. He simply is saying, that's not my source. But in words which the Holy Spirit teacheth, and now catch the last part, combining spiritual truths with spiritual words. How are we going to get the truth of the mind of God into the actions of men? It must be because God initiates an act whereby the Spirit of God, who alone knows the things of God, takes the truths of God and puts those truths in word forms, which word forms Paul was uttering and there could be no mistake in that transaction. Now, that method is portrayed more in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Look at this familiar passage for a moment. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, For the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man. See the emphasis on source again? It came not by the will of man. But holy men of God, a particular kind of man, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God is saying to us then, as to method, There is a dual authorship. That is, God was 100% involved, and man was 100% involved. It was not some kind of a 50-50 thing, so they compromised, and therefore they came up with an errant text. Not at all. God was totally involved, and man was totally involved. Therefore, When you look at the Holy Scriptures, you find all of the evidences of stylistic differences and vocabulary differences, grammatical differences in their writings. Peter and John and Paul are as different as day and night in their writings, if you understand literature. John was very simple in his grammar, the simplest vocabulary and grammar in the whole world. Paul was intensively logical. He was a scintillating logician. Peter was a preacher. He was an exhorter. And you see the differences in these men's gifts in their writing, And you see the differences of their background in their writings. So you know immediately that God in his work did not overrule man. The scriptures are human. So that the scriptures very really can say, has not David said, has not Isaiah said. But at the same time it says, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. So that at one and the same time, it was the Word of man and the Word of God. Now, why could it be both the Word of man and the Word of God? Simply for this reason, that God was using the fully prepared Holy Apostle to write with all of his humanness, while at the same time, God Almighty was superintending the process and bringing to it all of the weight of God. Now the word moved, M-O-V-E-D, in 2 Peter one twenty one, in classical Greek, is very instructive. It is pictured, for example, of a ship being borne along by the sea. The sea is spoken of as bearing the ship. That's the same word. That is, without the sea, the ship would be a wreck. It is absolutely dependent on the sea, even though the ship has its own characteristics. The word is also used of a mother bearing a baby in her arms. While that mother is bearing the baby, the baby does not check its brain out to lunch. The baby still has a brain, the baby still thinks, the baby still has its own characteristics, but the baby is utterly dependent upon the mother being born along. Now God says, holy men, as they were moved, not at all times, that is, not everything they said was the word of God, but holy men, as they were being moved, and that's a present participle, present tense, contemporaneous, While they were being moved along by the Holy Spirit, that which they wrote was the very word of God in their own expression. And because it was the very word of God, it must partake of the character of God, and therefore the scriptures in their original writing could not have any error in them. For to have an error is to charge God with error. And that's why that first link in the process of communication, the golden link, must be infallible, must be inerrant. For it is right from God, it is spoken of as the breath of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Tomorrow we'll talk about that in more detail. But for right now, that was the method of revelation. The dual authorship, God and man were wholly involved. So you see the perfectness of God in the scriptures, and you see the humanness of man in the scriptures. Now please understand, just because man was wholly involved does not mean the scriptures must partake of the fallibility of man, for man is not essentially sinful. Man is sinful by inheritance and practice, but he is not sinful in essence, that is, Humanity is not, in essence, sinful. It became that way. It is not that way, essentially. Therefore, it is not necessary for something to be sinful in order for it to be human. It is necessary for something that man has done to be protected from error because of the sinfulness of man. And that's what God has done in undergirding and overruling that which man did in giving to us the special revelation of God.